Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. Our theme is based upon Luke 1 and verse 1 where Luke said that he was writing about things most surely believed among us. There are fundamentals and basics of the Christian religion. They are revealed in Scripture. And the things that are written in Scripture are surely believed among us. So we begin today by focusing upon the God of Scripture. And then at our morning worship, we emphasized Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God. And as we continue tonight... We're going to be thinking about God's God-given guide that is in Scripture. So we'll be focusing upon the Bible tonight. Every sermon obviously should come from the Bible, but we'll be talking about the Bible tonight as God's given guide. For us to live right here and to guide us ultimately to heaven. So let's begin and let me first of all make a statement and ask a question. The Bible is here. We have it. How are we to regard it? Now even though the Bible contains history. It is not primarily a history book. Though the Bible contains moral teaching, it is not just a book of morality. How are we to regard the scriptures? And in order to answer the question, I want us to begin tonight by noting some of the claims that scripture makes for itself. And there are three things that I want to say. The first is that the scripture claims to be inspired. The word inspired literally means God breathed or God spirited. When I was a student many years ago at Fried Hardeman College, it was a junior college in those days, but I stayed for a third year Bible program And one of my teachers was a man whose name will be familiar to many of you. His name was Frank Van Dyke. He's the only man like he was that I ever knew. A great Bible scholar. 
And he gave us preacher boys this definition of inspiration that I've never forgotten. He said, inspiration is the inbreathing of God into men, enabling them to receive and to communicate divine truth without error. Now, that's not just about it. That's it. The inbreathing of God into men, enabling them to receive and to communicate divine truth without error. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul said, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed. The men who wrote the Bible, 40 in number, did not write simply from their own thoughts. They were inspired by God, directed by the Spirit of God. So number one, the Bible claims to be the inspired word of God. Then in the second place, the Bible claims to be a revelation from God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in two verses, verses 10 and 13, the Apostle Paul claimed that he spoke things that were revealed. Which things also we speak, not in the words, he said, that men speak, but in the words that the Holy Spirit speaks. That is so significant because it tells us the extent to which the Bible is inspired. It isn't just inspired in thoughts. It's inspired word for word. Now, the writers of Scripture were sometimes educated, sometimes they were uneducated. Luke was a doctor, and when a man was inspired in the first century, he was still the personality that he was. If he was uneducated, he wrote as an uneducated man. If he was educated, as an educated man, and as a doctor... He wrote as a doctor. Somebody did a study and said that there is more medical language in Luke and Acts, the two books written by Dr. Luke, than all the rest of the New Testament combined. God did not destroy the personalities of the writers, but the Holy Spirit guided them in their word selection so that they wrote exactly and precisely what God wanted them to write. And so when the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, is properly translated into our language, and when the Greek New Testament is properly translated into our language, that is the very word of God. That's what the Bible claims for itself. It is inspired and it's a revelation. The third thing I want to say is I want to emphasize the Holy Spirit's work in inspiration and revelation. In 2 Peter 1, 19 and 20, Peter said, No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now that's how the English Bible, at least some translations, translate that verse. But it's misleading. It's not good translation 
because it speaks of interpretation. And the Greek word that Peter used has nothing to do with interpreting the Bible. It has to do with the origin of the Bible. And so Peter was saying, no prophecy of Scripture is of private origin. It didn't come from men. And then he goes on to say, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Literally, that means born along. It is a picture of a sailing vessel at sea. And the wind comes into the sail and moves the boat along. So the Holy Spirit came to men selected by God and moved them along in the direction that God wanted them to go so that they wrote down the words that God wanted us to have. Now those are some of the claims of Scripture. They're high and mighty claims. And so I want to notice, secondly, the validity of the claims of Scripture. Why do we believe the Bible? Now, if I ask you to make a list of reasons you believe the Bible, you might give reasons other than what I'm going to say here tonight, and you might be right. There are many reasons that we believe the Bible, but I want to mention five of them briefly. I believe the Bible because of its act its absolute accuracy. From Genesis to Revelation, you have 66 books written by about 40 different men. Obviously, some of them lived at the same time. Most of them lived at different times. And yet, when their writings are brought together into a completed volume, there is not a single contradiction from Genesis to Revelation. The absolute accuracy of Scripture on every subject is astounding. And I believe the Bible because of its accuracy. Number two, I believe the Bible because of fulfilled prophecy. In the Bible, when prophets are mentioned, that word is used as one who speaks for God. It literally means one who speaks for another. You remember when Moses was making excuses for not being the one to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage? God swept that excuse aside and he said, Moses, who's that coming down the road? And Moses looked and it was his brother Aaron. And he said, you take Aaron with you into Egypt. Because he is going to be your prophet. What does that mean? He's going to speak for you. Now basically and fundamentally, prophets spoke to their own age and their own times. But there were times when they spoke of future events. And whenever they speak of future events... What they prophesied always came to pass. And I would emphasize that the prophets of the scripture were not just making guesses about the future. You know, this morning when we came here for Bible study and worship, there was a cloud coming in. And if I had said to you when you came into the building, it's going to rain today, I would be right about that, but that doesn't make me a prophet. To use that analogy, if somebody came into your midst 
and said that in 200 years it was going to rain on this building and nowhere else in the world and that came to pass, that would be prophecy. And that was the way the prophets spoke. They talked of future events and future people. And what they said always came to pass. An example of that can be found in Isaiah chapters 44 and 45. I would remind you that Isaiah spoke about 750 years before Jesus came. In Isaiah's prophecy, God spoke through the prophet and said that his people, Israel, would go into bondage in Babylon. Jeremiah said it would be for 70 years. That Babylonian captivity did not occur for almost 150 years after Isaiah spoke. But in these two chapters that I mentioned, Isaiah said that at the end of the captivity, there would be a king whose name was Cyrus. And he would give those in captivity the right to go home. Those things were not going to occur for a long, long time. So at the end of the 70 years of captivity, there was a king who came to the throne of Persia. There had been years before a little boy baby born in Persia. And his parents named him Cyrus. And I doubt very seriously if they had any idea why they chose that name. But I know why they chose it. God said his name would be Cyrus. And one of the first things that Cyrus did was release the Jewish people from captivity. That's fulfilled prophecy. There are countless examples of that in scripture. As a matter of fact, the life of Christ is told in minute detail from Genesis to Revelation. And some of what was said was written hundreds of years before he was born, including his birth of a virgin after preexistent in eternity. The prophet spoke of his ministry, of his death on the cross, of his burial, of his resurrection, and of his glorification and of his coming again, all before they happened. That's fulfilled prophecy. And that's one of the reasons I believe. So there's accuracy and there's fulfilled prophecy. Number three, I believe that the scripture is inspired of God because of Jesus himself. When Jesus came and engaged in his ministry, He was emphasizing great truth. And one of the things that he did was place his stamp of approval on the Old Testament. And what is amazing to me is that he placed his approval upon the places in the Old Testament that unbelievers or skeptics have most often denied. What are those things? Well... What do skeptics deny about the Old Testament? They deny the creation story, right? 
In Matthew 19, Jesus said, He who made them in the beginning made them male and female. This is not a fable. It is actual history that took place in time. What other passages do skeptics deny? Well, there's Noah's Ark and the great flood. And in Matthew 24, Jesus was talking about the end of the world. And he said, like the days of Noah were. Not as the days of Noah were portrayed to be or thought to be. This was an historic incident. What else? Well, there's Jonah and the whale. Skeptics have denied that again and again. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus knew that those were historic events and that they were accurate. Jesus spoke of the Old Testament as being true. Now, I might just add this. Of the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, skeptics have most often denied Mosaic authorship of Deuteronomy. They believe that the things about which Moses wrote came much later in history and consequently Moses could not have written. When Jesus was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, he met each of the three temptations with quotations from scripture. You remember he would say it is written. Did you know that each of the quotations was from the book of Deuteronomy? Jesus believed the Old Testament was the word of God. Then he put his stamp of approval on the New Testament before it was ever written. He said to his disciples in John 16, 13, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of himself, but he will speak that which he hears, and he will show you things to come. In John 14 and verse 26, Jesus has said, when the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, comes, he will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Jesus was saying, the Spirit is coming. The Spirit will guide the writers of Scripture into all truth. Because of Jesus, I believe the Bible is what it claimed to be. Then number four, there is the writer of scripture in the old testament there were those who wrote for god under great duress and persecution many of god's people in the old testament were put to death because of what they believed in the new testament all the apostles of christ with the exception of john died as martyrs and John was banished to an island called Patmos. People do not die for a message that they know is a lie. And because of the writers of Scripture and the way they lived and the way they were willing to die, I believe the claims of Scripture. And then I want to say, number five, I believe in the claims of Scripture because they're reasonable. Because they're reasonable. 
If we believe that God is, and only the fool has said in his heart there is no God. If we believe that God is God and who he claims to be, it is reasonable to believe that he would speak to his creature man. And indeed he has. Hebrews chapter 1 begins, God who at sundry times and in divers manners, that is at different times and in different ways, has spoken unto the fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken unto us by his son. We have seen the claims of scripture and reason for believing that those claims are valid. Now in the third place, I want to look at some basic fundamental facts about the Bible. Stay with me now as we underscore these facts. Fact number one, the Bible is made up of two parts. There are two divisions in Scripture. I said it was going to be basic. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you may respond to that by saying, well, everybody knows that and everybody believes that. Well, in the religious community, right here in your town, I'm sure, but in the religious community, there are countless people who don't know whether the Old Testament is a law for us or if it was for somebody else. They don't know whether we're under the New Testament or the law of Moses. And we need to understand, and it's beyond the scope of our study tonight to go into this anymore in detail, but we need to understand what the Old Testament is. And somebody said the Old Testament is the New Testament's concealed. And we need to understand what the New Testament is. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So there are two parts. Fact number two, in the Bible there are three great religions that are revealed. One we rightly call the patriarchal age. It was a family religion and the father served the family as its prophet. That is, like Abraham, the father spoke for God to his family. That's what a prophet is, one who speaks for another. The father also, under the patriarchal age, that biblically is covered by the book of Genesis, then the Bible traces the descendants of Abraham, but patriarchy went on until the cross. And under patriarchy, the father was the priest for the family. That is, he represented his family to God. He offered sacrifice for his family. And a priest is one who stands between God and man. And then the, the father under patriarchy served as a religious leader. He was in the place of a king. So he was prophet, priest, and king. But then we come to the Mosaic Age, beginning in the book of Exodus. It begins to unfold. And it was a, natural, a, a national religion rather than a family religion. And under the Mosaic system, there was a specific group of prophets who revealed God's will to the nation. There was an elaborate priesthood and the priests represented man to God. And under the Mosaic law, you know well that there were kings over Israel. 
in the Old Testament. And the third religion is Christianity. And under this New Testament era, Jesus Christ is God's prophet to us. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God in these last days has spoken to us by his son. Christ is the prophet. He also is our high priest. He represents us to God. And the reason that you and I, as sinful people, can approach a holy God is because of the work of Jesus Christ as our high priest. And then 1 Timothy 6 tells us that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And it's important in studying the Bible to know when the Bible's talking to the patriarchs and when it's talking to the nation and when it's talking to Christians. There are three great religions. Fact number three, there are two basic covenants. Now, a covenant is an agreement between two or more parties involving promises and obligation. God has made numerous covenants with men under different circumstances. But of all the covenants that God has made, they may be reduced in importance to two basic covenants. The first I refer to is the covenant that he made with a man called Abram and later his name was Abraham. It's found in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 7. The reason I say that this is the most important covenant of the Old Testament is because everything after God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, everything in the rest of the Bible is about that covenant. The covenant that God made with Abraham was threefold. God said, I will make of you a great nation. That was remarkable because Abraham was going on in years and his wife was getting older and she was barren. But God fulfilled the promise. I will make of you a great nation. Number two, he said, I will give that nation a land in which to live. The nation was Israel. The land was the land of Canaan. And most significantly, God said, in the third place, through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. In other places, God would say, Abraham, in your seed, in your descendant, all families of the earth will be blessed. We know who the nation is. We know what the land is. And we also know who the promised descendant is. In Galatians 3.16, Paul said, to Abraham and his descendants, were the promises made. And he saith not unto descendants or seeds, as of many, but as of one and to your descendant who is Christ. If the Bible says this is that, that ends the discussion as to what this is. And when the Bible says the promised descendant through Abraham is Christ, that ends the identity of who it is. And you can see that after Genesis 12, the rest of the Bible is dealing with the fulfillment of those three points of covenant. Now, added to the covenant that God made with Abraham 
God gave the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. Notice this statement in Galatians 3.19 about the law of Moses. Paul's asked the question, wherefore serves the law? Why was the law given? And he said it was added. It was added because of transgression. And that means so that transgression could be more apparent, so that people would understand their need for a savior. He says it was added because of transgression till the promised seed shall come. Now that's Galatians 3.19. Verse 16 said the promised seed was Christ. So the law of Moses was never intended to be permanent. It was added to the promise that God made to Abraham because that's what God is doing in all of Scripture from Genesis 12 onward. To that promise, he added the law to govern his people in the land through the coming of Christ. Notice that Paul said, till, till the promised seed should come. The word till means that there is an end coming to something. If I said to you that I'm going to preach tonight until 7 o'clock, you would expect me to quit at 7 o'clock. Now, I'm not making that promise. Don't hold me to that promise. But we understand what till means. So the all was added till Christ came and then it would be taken away. And Christ is the fulfillment of of the great covenant that God made with Abraham. Now the other major covenant is the gospel. It is the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. It is the new covenant of Hebrews chapter 8. And the greatest blessing that the new covenant brought was the forgiveness, the absolute forgiveness of sin. Now in the Old Testament era, God could forgive anybody he wanted to. But the law of Moses had a sacrificial system. Animal sacrifices offered each year, especially on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, designated by God, he forgot their sins for a year. But the next year, on the Day of Atonement, God remembered the sins of that year and all the other years. There was no absolute forgiveness. But Hebrews 8 and verse 12 says that when the new covenant comes, I will remember their sins and their iniquities no more. Not for a year, but no more. I will forgive them. There are two major covenants in the Bible. Now, fact number four, there are doctrines in Scripture. I was talking with a young preacher some time ago, and in our discussion, he said, you know, I'm not much into doctrine. Now, I knew what he meant, but I had to smile and explain to him his contradiction of ideas. Because all that doctrine is, is teaching. In Acts 2 and verses 41 and 2, when on the beginning day of the church, the gospel was preached, people obeyed it, and then scripture says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. 
Well, it just meant in the apostles' teaching. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, the time would come when people would not endure sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, and he means healthy teaching. Doctrine is teaching. So what the young man was saying is, my teaching is I don't believe in teaching, which obviously is a contradiction of terms. There are doctrines in the New Testament that must be not only learned, but applied. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, Paul instructed the young preacher Timothy to hold to the pattern of sound words. And there can be no sound words that contradict the word of God. And that brings me to my fifth fact. In the Bible, there are patterns. I was preaching a meeting over in East Texas, not far from where I live. And on Sunday morning, between the Bible class and worship, I was trying to shift gears from what I taught in class to get ready to preach at that second service. And I felt somebody standing next to me. And I looked, and there was a young man. I stood up, and he said, you are one, and these are his words, you are one of them there patternists, aren't you? Now, I knew what he meant, but I asked him, I said, what do you mean by that, that I'm a patternist? He said, well, you think that there's pattern, there are patterns in the Bible for the various aspects of the Christian religion. For example, you think that there is a pattern for the church and what the church does. And I'm getting ready to preach in a few minutes, so I stopped him there and I said, I'm guilty. Yes, I believe there are patterns in Scripture. First of all, God had a pattern for Noah's ark, didn't he? He gave Noah the specifics of that ark. God had a pattern for Moses' tabernacle. And though there, was, there were elaborate things around the tabernacle, God gave Moses the exact pattern by which he was to build it. And there was a pattern for Solomon's temple. God gave details to David, Solomon's father, who passed them on to Solomon. And Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem according to that pattern. Now let me make this point. All three of those things... Noah's Ark, Moses' Tabernacle, and Solomon's Temple were types or shadows or pictures of nothing other than the church of the living God that would come into existence on the first Pentecost following the resurrection of Christ. And my question is this. If God has a pattern for the type, the shadow, the dim outline of the ark, the tabernacle, and the temple, God has a pattern for the real, that to which the other things pointed, the church that you read about in the New Testament. Yes, there are patterns in Scripture. And Paul says, as noted in 2 Timothy 1.13, hold to sound words, but he said this, hold to the pattern 
of sound words. To say there are no patterns would be to deny what God has said. So there are patterns. Fact number six. There are commands in the Bible. There are folks in the community who are not very uh, positive toward commandments from God. But I'm seeing a growing attitude among church members that they're not very interested in what God commands. A lot of folks that I'm meeting, when they approach religion and how they're going to worship and serve God, they make statements like this. I think it ought to be this way or that way. I think. Or I feel that, and then you can fill in the blank. Or I would prefer that we do this or that. In the final analysis, though we are not blind or deaf to the beliefs and the wants and the preferences of people, in regard to the things of God and what God has clearly spoken upon, it doesn't matter what we believe, how we feel, or what we prefer. The only thing that matters is what did God teach us? And then that's the thing that we need to believe, and that's the thing we need to want, and that's the thing we need to prefer. In the Bible, there are commandments. The words like go and be and do, those are still words of the Scripture. There are commandments. Fact number seven. There are approved apostolic examples in Scripture. When we mention examples in Scripture, we are talking about an action of the early church. And I would want to hasten to say that not every action of the early church, not everything the early church did, is a binding example upon us. In order for an example, an action of the early church to be binding today, there needs to be behind their example a commandment from God. A most obvious reference to apostolic example is in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. In Luke 22 and verse 19, Jesus instituted the supper and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Now, when the church started, I would assume that the church would do that, wouldn't you? So I'm interested in, when did they do it? On what days did they do it? At what times did they do it? How often did they do it? Those are questions that are pertinent. And when we come to the New Testament, Acts 20 and verse 7 gives us the example that upon the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. Now, in that context, I don't know any reputable scholar who says that that breaking of bread is anything other than a summation of the Lord's Supper. Because later in the chapter, there is a common meal that the church observed after the worship assembly, like we did here today. But this is a reference to the Lord's Supper. And here's something of interest to me. When Paul the Apostle came to Troas and came together with the church to observe the Lord's Supper, he was on his way to Jerusalem. 
And we learned that he was in a hurry to get there. But he arrived in Troas on Monday. And this is clear from Scripture. He stayed there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. He's on a hur- in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. Why is he staying there? On the first day of the week, they came together and observed the Lord's Supper. Paul wanted to observe the Lord's Supper with him. Well, since he's in a hurry, why didn't they take it on Monday and let him be on his way? Simply because they didn't take it on any other day. And somebody wants to say, well, it doesn't say they did it every Sunday. You remember in the Old Testament when God said among the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy? He didn't say in that text, keep every Sabbath, but everybody knows that he meant every Sabbath. You remember the man who went out on one Sabbath and picked up sticks, breaking the Sabbath law? Moses didn't know what to do, and he took it to God, and God said, stone him to death. God meant every Sabbath. Do you know upon the first day of every week, the brethren are not going to have to look for me. When at all possible, I'm going to find them and I'm going to gather together in assembly and observe with them the Lord's Supper. There are apostolic examples in Scripture. Number eight, there are inferences in Scripture. An inference is an implication. It is not strictly mentioned, specifically mentioned in Scripture, but the facts surrounding it imply or infer that something is true. Now let me state a simple rule of Bible study. And the rule is this. Every commandment of God carries with it the authority to do whatever is necessary to obey that commandment. Now let me repeat that because it's important. Every commandment of God carries with it the authority to do whatever is necessary in obeying the commandment. That's what we mean by inference. Now I want to say a word more about that, but let me give you an example of When Jesus was baptized of John in the river Jordan in Matthew chapter 3, Scripture says that they came up out of the water. It says nothing about them going down into the water. But the inference is that they did because they can't come up out of unless they went down into. That's an inference. In regard to commandments, carrying the authority to do whatever is necessary, To obey the commandment, think of the commandment to assemble on the first day of the week or to assemble and not forsake the assembly, Matthew 10, or Hebrews 10 and verse 25. That commandment demands a place. And we can provide a place with the authority of God, even though Scripture never mentions a church building. Now, you don't have to have a church building. A few years ago, I was in Africa doing some preaching, and we visited several small congregations out in the backwoods of Africa. And we visited one church that literally met under a tree. But wherever the church meets for worship, 
there has to be a place. And the inference is you can provide a place. It can be a brush arbor like my grandfather had. It can be a tent like we had when I was a boy. It can be a rented building. It could be a private home. Or it can be a structure built for that purpose. Now we want to use good judgment in what we provide. We don't want to build a Taj Mahal, but we can provide a place. That's what we mean by inferring, implying. Or take the commandment to baptize. Baptism is a burial in water, so you have to have enough water to immerse a person. You can be immersed anywhere there's that much water, in the ocean, in the river, in a stream, in a lake, in a pond, or you can provide a place for that because every commandment of God carries the authority to do what is necessary to obey that commandment. Number nine, there are principles in Scripture. In Acts chapter 2 and again in Acts 4, one of the first problems that faced the first century church was that there were brethren in need. The reason they were in need is beyond the scope of what I want to do here, but they were in need. You know what the people did? Some of them having houses and land sold them and provided for that need. Now that isn't a commandment of God to sell your property. The only person that... I can remember in scripture that was required to give everything he had away was the rich young ruler who was not only a possessor of things, but things possessed him. And if he'd given half of it away, the other half would still have possessed him. So Jesus said, give it all away. But you don't have to give away everything you have. However, the principle is that if a tornado came through your town, as one did not so long ago, and there were brethren who had their houses blown away, I want to believe that the church would do whatever is necessary to fulfill that need. And then the last of these is number 10. The scripture teaches by silence. I cannot tell you how often in the last five to 10 years that I've been in a religious discussion with somebody who said, well, the Bible doesn't say not to. There are a lot of things the Bible doesn't say not to do. I don't know anywhere in Scripture where the Bible says, do not have ham and eggs on the Lord's table. But we don't do that simply because the Bible doesn't say not to do it. Here is a principle that we have trouble learning in religion that in our everyday lives, we have no trouble. When I was a boy, five or six years of age, we had those corner grocery stores in our communities. You remember those? And one day my mother called me in and gave me a quarter, and this tells you how old I am. She gave me a quarter and said, I want you to go to the store down on the corner and buy a loaf of bread. Can you imagine a loaf of bread being less than a quarter? Actually, Loaves of bread in that day were 10 cents, and there was no tax. So go and get me a loaf of bread, and I did. And when I got the 15 cents in change, I thought it would be clever to buy 15 suckers, which I did. And when I got home, my mother was not amused. 
I could have said, Mom, you didn't say not to. Now, that's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? God only has to tell us what to do, and that excludes doing something else or something different. Now, let me close with this. How then are we to view Scripture? Let us love the truth. God's word is true, Jesus said. Let's love the truth. Let's believe the truth. Let's obey the truth. Let's live the truth. And let's teach the truth. God is counting on us. The world is depending on us. Let's be who we are. And let's respect and hold up the scriptures as the God-given guide from earth to heaven. And when the question is raised, how can I be saved? We have no right or reason to teach people anything other than penitent, baptized believers become Christians. If you haven't done that, that is the most important decision you could ever make. And if you're a child of God and you know that in your heart of hearts you are not faithful to him, you're throwing away your life. Do something about it. Tonight, while we stand and while we sing.